practical Kenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland. This is The Art Show on KCLR with Hugo Jealous. Good evening, everyone. We're into the last days of Santa's slimming regime and we're probably too preoccupied with the missing milk frother for the mother-in-law to really think about an art show. But here we are, flush on the promise of eggnog with a pink ticket to gobble from pig's trough, gorge on the goggle box, gamble on the nags at Leopardstown and hide the washing up in the oven. Our company today is the wondrous travel writer, documentary maker, Irish speaker and curiosity shop Monken McGann. Our artist in profile is Susie Lamb, actor, educator, author and member of the Thomastown Massive, where the twitchy people of the arts live in glorious pandemonium. And finally, if you're a Withnail and I fan, a real treat is in store for you. Words from Burris a few years back. First, though, let's hear from Susie Lamb. Susie is, uh, as I said, an actress, a writer, a voiceover artist and, and a performance educator, what um, people nowadays call a, a multidisciplinary uh, artist so there's plenty to talk about with her she grew up shy she she grew up in an acting family and she's been writing since she was a teenager in one form or another um in, in a sense to I, I suppose to overcome her shyness um and so let's hear from Susie, uh who um in her time uh, as an artist has completed one novel many stories a bit of flash fiction and some poems here we go So my name is Susie Lamb and my art practice is, well, really my first art practice was in is in theatre. Uh, that's where I started off. And you could say it's in performance in general, um, but I'm also a writer and a singer as well. Um, so I go between things, but generally it's performance. Performance is my main art practice. I'm originally from Dublin. But um, I moved to Connemara in 2003, where my father was from. And I lived there until 2006, when I moved to Kilkenny. So I moved to Kilkenny uh, to start a family. So that's where I've been since then. And I live in Thomastown. So it does affect living rurally has affected the work, um, particularly in terms of how I pace it. Uh, I, I would say that I work um, at a slightly slower pace in the sense that um, often the collaborators that I might be working with, they're, they're, they might be somewhere else. So it can be a slightly more protracted process sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, so that's one of the, the impacts and also some of the resources, particularly in terms of theatre, um, Although I do think the theatre resources in Kilkenny are getting better and better all the time. And there is a lot of support um, and a lot of interest. So that in itself is a very good resource. So I suppose key points in my career are mostly to do with, say, when I get published or when I get a part or when I get some funding. So anything that helps me to further a project, they stand out to me as high points in the sense that they allow me to do something or to allow me to keep going with a project. Being an artist in Kilkenny, um, it has so many advantages in the sense that there's a very good community. 
um, and people get to know you very easily. Although I still find I'm meeting people all the time who I didn't, you know, I didn't know they lived in Kilkenny. So that's very exciting. They're gener- generally speaking, there's a good local support. Um, so I am resurrecting a theatre performance called The Waiting, which I performed in 2006. And I'm currently looking at a way to progress this project. So I'll be doing a residency in Dance House in Dublin in January, um, where they've given me a space to work on this project. And then I will look for further funding and see how I can progress it. So I'm hoping to perform that sometime this year. I'm also working on a book, which I've been working on for a long, long, long time, nearly 15 years. And I'm still working on that. Um, But I'm hoping this year to get it out there somehow. I suppose the importance of time and space to me as an artist, um, well, really, it's everything. Absolutely everything, because all of the work takes so long, from the conception of an idea to carrying it out, to figuring out how am I going to do this, to applying for funding. That takes a a huge amount of time. You know, it could take up 70% of my time, I would say. to finding collaborators, to thinking about what is the best way to do this piece of work, and then to crafting the piece of work and polishing it. And then when the work is actually on, to promoting it, Um, and how much time that takes. But then there's also the aspect of the the dreaming time and the imagination and where that that really can't be hurried and so often I'll work on three or four projects concurrently because what I do is I'll work on one for a while and then I'll move on to something else and while I'm working on the other project my brain will be thinking and figuring out things or aspects of the, the first project and then in terms of space, in terms of theatre, space is just so important. You know, you need a, a room that you can work in. Um, and as I get older, I used to work anywhere. But now I, you know, I, I tend to like places that are a bit warmer. You know, I can't dance so much on floors that aren't as well um, suited as I would have. I would have just jumped around on anything. Um, so... You know, it's just really, really important in terms of the sustainability as an artist, in terms of your physical health as well, because, you know, being an actor and performer, you know, one has to be in good physical condition. So the most rewarding part of being an artist, um, well, I suppose it's the variety. And for me, because I, I, I like I like the variety. I like meeting different kinds of people. And I like that some of my work is solitary and some of it is very um, community-based and collaborative. So I really like that variety and it suits my personality because I'm an introvert, extrovert. So I go between those two things. If somebody asked me for advice about being an artist, I mean, I'd never discourage anybody, uh, even though in my own family, because I grew up in a family of of artists there was often the question well you know or the worry I suppose well how are you going to live how are you going to survive because my own family had seen you know the challenges of that Um, 
but I would never try to discourage anybody. But I would, I would um, encourage people to figure out if, if they love what they do. do. Do they love it? Because that's what's going to carry you through difficult times or rejection. I suppose different people have influenced me at different times and it's often it might be to do with whatever I'm working on at the time or whatever I'm most interested in and in terms of theatre a lot of European theatre work was very interesting to me because it was such an emphasis on the physical more so than we would have had in Ireland in our theatre tradition um, and then my father who has passed away he he had a very big influence on me and I still often remember a lot of what he has said or what he said to me about acting and his work ethic he very much viewed theatre and acting as a, as a job and it, it was a job for him um, and he had a a really strong work ethic and, and that's rubbed off on me and it, it's for me it, it really helps with the process of acting that it that you know that when I look at the craft and working hard, it, it takes a lot of the um, the the drama out of it, in a way, ironically, and it keeps it very simple and grounded. And that's been a, a really big influence on me. Um, if I had one wish for the arts in Ireland, hmm, oh, I don't know, it's hard to narrow it down to one thing, but I think one thing I talk about a lot is that I would prefer if, particularly in theatre, that it was less centralised. Generally speaking, the balance is a little bit in, in favour of the larger cities. Um, of course, we have the Kilkenny Arts Festival here, but that's a thing in itself. So I, sub I, I, so I suppose I mean on a more day-to-day -day, uh, basis, I, I would be in favour of that, and it's something I've been pushing for a lot um, in terms of some of the things that I've done here in Kilkenny. Um, having said that, it is changing and companies are have been moving to Kilkenny. Theatre companies have been moving to Kilkenny. So things are changing and the infrastructure is slowly, slowly building up. And it's not for, for any anybody's lack of effort. Um, you know, there are challenges. I think in that rural city divide, um, I have some information about my work on Instagram, which is Susie Lamb 2022. My songs and poems are on Bandcamp Susie Lamb Loveland. So if you Google that, um, that should come up. That was uh, artist, multidisciplinary artist Susie Lamb. Uh, and I learned during the break that uh, Susie Lamb's dad, uh, Pad Lamb, uh, he of many films, but uh, he 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 played a small role of Father Boyle in Father Ted, season two, episode two for the nerdy people, and um, and it it gives us a tangential opportunity to play a track in honour of the passing of Terry Hall from the specials. So here we are now with Ghost Town. Welcome back. Now, get, let's get ourselves linked in with Monken McGann from his Oakwood in Westmeath, where he lives the life of a hobbity man in a grass, glass-roofed or grass-roofed mud dwelling, surrounded by bees and hens, 
and he'd be in touch with us today if he could using a subterranean network of mycelium, but we'll have to make do with Telecomarin. Monken began is a writer and a documentary maker documentary maker has written about life in africa and in india south america he's found time to write two novels he writes for the irish times when a good story beckons he's made some 30 travel documentaries he presents a podcast and most recently and deservedly authored uh, award-winning best-selling books including 32 words for a field and just a month or two ago listen to the land speak i think we have a lazy sod on our hands don't you welcome uh, Moncon. Thank you so much, Hugo. Lovely to hear from you this evening. Well, so storytelling is is the oldest trade, despite claims to the contrary by more racy factions. And you've taken this as your line of work, but really you've you've decided to live with it and to inhabit each story and to visit it or build it or learn the language of it. So what, what do you feel your place in the canon of storytelling is? Do you do it for the company that you get to keep? I think I do it for, no, it was sort of a therapy it began. Like, the world, you know, didn't make sense to me when I was growing up, and so nothing made sense to me, except this sort of spirit world. I always had a connection with that sort of spirit world, with these benevolent, guiding sort of energy or voices or something in my head. And so, but it's, and that's okay, that's fine when you're a kid. You know, everyone loves the, the dreamer kid who made, mightn't have friends, mightn't be playing games, but is off sitting on the tree trunk or sitting under the bushes happily. But like, at the age of 18 or 19, you know, you suddenly need to find a role in the world. And I decided, I just couldn't, any of the roles that were being mapped out for me, either, you know, a, a job in an office or as an academic or something, none of them made sense. And so... I fled. I went off like for many years just into to Africa and South America and India looking for minority cultures. And then I realized, no, I can't flee. You know, I have to find out what it is here in Ireland. So in the end, I ended up working in this organic farm down in Wicklow. Mm-hmm. And that made sense to me. And so ever since then, I've been just, just been thinking, how can I live in a way that things will make sense, that things won't be utterly either alien or, or sad or, or lonely. And so that was the idea with buying my, my 10 acres here and building, as you said, first my hovel, my straw bale house, which I lived in for about six years. And then I not, well, I sort of knocked it. Westmead Planning Commission had sort of given me temporary planning commission. Well, had ignored, had been kind enough to ignore it for a few years. So the current house I'm living in, I sort of, the first house I built entirely myself, this house I sort of half built. It's like uh, I, I started the, found, the concrete foundations, but then I realized they were very wonky. So it has a grass roof, and as you said, it does have mud and straw in the walls, but it also has sort of concrete in the, in the, in the walls. So it's classic, like, um, schizophrenic. It's, what I, it's me sort of the way, as you say, some point I am totally in the world, and the other point I am this sort of um, person who's fleeing to find nature, and then trying to find ways of sharing other people, sharing with other people the stories I find, or the ways I find of, to interact with, with the world. Yeah, I'm visualising your wonky house, Mark on, and I, I suppose your, you know, your early days of, of travel seem to ring of trying to find your own tribe, and, and so often when you try to find your own tribe, your own tribe is, is here in front of you and at home, and, and obviously you become a you know, you become a great advocate for for the Irish language, and um, but also particularly in 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 the book that you have just published, um, an advocate for the for the country that we're living in and the land that we're treading on and and and, and moving across every day. Uh, tell us a little bit more about about your book. Listen to the land speak. Mm, like. 
again, we sort of, I mean, Ireland is very small, and so we sort of have a sense of what Ireland is from we do geography in school and we do history and our, we do school trips bring us to, to, to the Rock of Cashel or whatever, and then our parents bring us out. But then I was thinking, wait there, when I would go to work and film with other communities around the world, whether it be the Taromara people in the valleys of, of um, the Sierra Madre in Mexico or the Yami people on Lanyu Island of Taiwan or, or these matriarchal cultures in Yunnan, the Nahi and the Masu, I realized their, their sense of the world was so much on their landscape, their home territory, was so much bigger than just, you know, what is that sugar meat beet is grown in Carlo or that, you know, the rocky coastline of Atlantic Ocean is a good tourist opportunity. It, it went beyond all that. And particularly something that happened to me on Lanyu Island, on this tiny island, which is about 90 miles off Taiwan, where an old indigenous man said to me, one of the Polynesian seafaring tribes, he, he started singing a song to me and he said, look, I don't know anything about your culture and you don't know anything about mine. He says, but our creation myth of the Yami people is about the sea because most people from this come from the sea. And they said, you probably have a creation myth like that too. And uh, so I'm going to sing you the song and you'll understand, you'll, you know, you'll resonate with some element of it. And the minute she started singing, I started, like, I had goosebumps all over me because I remembered back to these, um, <clears throat> the, the, the Blasket Island songs that I used to hear when we used to spend, like, about a quarter of the year in West Kerry listening to these old Blasket Islanders who had been forcibly moved onto the mainland when the government decided that there was no longer going to be people living on the Blaskets in, in 19, the 1950s. And there was this resonance between them. And so I thought, okay, we do actually have this, we must have our own birth song, our own creation myth of our, of our land, and because we've been living on the land for so long. So, so what is it? And so then I went back to the mythology, and I came across, I mean, a lot of people are now coming across this, um, the Book of Invasions, you know, which is just in a mythical account of these generations of people who landed on our shore, but particularly the first one, sort of Anya, this goddess energy of the light from the south, the warmth and light from the south, which is almost, it's a mythological way of describing that there was no one on this island until relatively recently, you know, until 10,000 years ago when the ice sheet melted and the warmth and the light came from the south and then people followed that light, a light and uh, settled on the island. And we've put all that into our mythology. And so I thought, okay, we do know there's a bit about Finn McCool and Coo We all know somewhere which is called Sea Finn or, you know, somewhere where one of where Dearmond and Grania would have slept when they were fleeing Finn McCool or up in, in North Leinster and Ulster. You have all the stories connected to the town Bokulna and Coo and they're sort of they're sort of bloody and warrior and egomaniacal in a way, and and very male. Um, and I thought, no, that's not the sort of stories we hear from other tribal people. And so when I looked at it again, I realised every part of Ireland has these stories about goddesses or female energies. And I thought, why do we never hear about that? So that was really what I wanted to try and communicate and connect. That a lot of people will have this really profound compassion or sympathy or affection for Ireland that's not about, you know, Cúchulain beheading loads of warriors. It's some, it's some connection that we find very, very hard to mention or to, to vocalise unless we're very drunk or on magic mushrooms or something. Yes. But actually it's akin to, to people who have been and indigenous people or people who have been living on a land for thousands of years. So I wanted to explore a little about that and then try and find a way to communicate it. Yes, and I've heard you say a few times that it is the turn of the women and, and the time for female energy. So my question is, what can we expect from... 
the brilliant creatures um, that are coming mm. down the road instead of the warrior dunderheads that we've had to um, <laughs> learn about in school for the last hundred years. Yeah, well, I suppose, I suppose a, a key element of all those, the dunderheads, as you say, and even the mythology, the sort of the first layer, the sort of superficial layer of the mythology that we were taught in school, the, the Kukons and Fimikul, it's all about duality. It's all about, you know, one versus the other, either the enemy, the good versus the bad, the light versus the dark, the male versus the female. And I suppose what's coming in this entire world and what our young generation seem to be showing us so clearly is it's not about duality anymore, is it? It just seems to be some way of either sort of a, a, a multivalence or an, inter, an interdimensionality or just, uh, what's that word they say now, yes and instead of yes but or yes no, yes, yes. and. So it seems that everything, uh, a new energy will not be that simplistic black and white. Everything is grey and everything is allowed. And that sort of nebulous sense is a I don't know, is it too general to say it's a sort of feminine quality? But it's a, so it's not obviously that the men now need to go back into a hole and women come out and stand on top of men. And I don't really understand what the future is, but I do know that it's clear that this sort of driven, egotistical, vain sort of male idea that has, has created so many amazing opportunities in, in the world with, this, with, the, with progress has also been destructive. And so it seems that some new... Um, insight or energy or consciousness is going to arise up that will supersede it and my sense is it will be more is it less domineering and less direct forward and more um, engaging with loads with sort of more yeah consensus um, and communication and community building which often were sort of female attributes I think. yes and I, I mean I think you know linguistically it's it's so uh, it's telling from your work for example that that um, the Shannon, you know, has a sort of a, a, you know, a feminine character to it. And, and works of, of cartographers like uh, Tim Robinson, who came in at a time, I guess, when um, the Ordnance Survey uh, people had, had replaced a lot of the old Irish name, place names, with... Um, with with new anglicised names, and, and and it took people like Tim and Englishman, funny enough, to to then come in and and reclaim that side of language that 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 gave a personality to our topography and to our geography and geology and so on. Exactly, exactly. So I just spent last week down in West Kerry collecting sea words from fishermen there. So for a previous project I did for Galway 2020, I was collecting words up in, in Donegal and Mayo and Galway, but I hadn't been down to West Kerry, which is like the community and the, the locality I know the best. So I spent the week last week out on, you know, rocky sea heads and cliff faces and the shoreline with fishermen and talking to them in their houses and the pubs as well. And I mean, I was blown away again by yet another level, another sort of tidal wave of insight I received. And mainly, there was this man, Sean Makatihig. He has a, a very good Instagram account. He's, he's, he, 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 makes, he films things for RT News down in West Kerry, and he's got Unbooteen as his Instagram, his Twitter account, and a lot of followers. But he's hugely respected down there because he comes from a lineage down there that were very interested in heritage. So he brings me out onto the headland, and he says, look, Sean Roiland, this is the shoulders, this is the, he showed me, this is like the head, this is Unpligan, Sean Chown, this is the breast, this is the, 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 the thighs and the hips, the 
whole of the landscape, he was a different elements of the landscape, he was able to point out different names connected to the body. And he said, like, this was a very hostile area, it was a hostile, in terms of hostile conditions. Either you were out fishing on the tiny little Neavog, the Corrach, the, you know, the canvas or leather clad boat, or you were trying to farm on the land with this massive, you know, tornadoes and appalling storms washing in off the Atlantic. So it was, it was a, you know, an imposing place. And to try and make it more familiar, to try and make it more homely for humans, they named every element, but not only that, made the body, made it sort of a body so that they would feel safe, they would feel um, looked after in it. And even, he pointed down behind me, because I thought, was this just a coastal thing? And he said, look at that, it's the, the valley of the conversations, he said, because there were two streams there. And at the time, after a really heavy downpour, pour, pour, you hear the two streams, even down at the bottom of the valley, even down in the cliff. And it sounds like the rivers or the streams are having a conversation with each other. So even, you know, in our, in, in our, in like 20, 30 years ago, we were still doing this. We were name, making the landscape personal and intimate and human. And of course, if the landscape around you is a body, then you are not going to be poisoning it each year, you know, with, with nitrates in the rivers. You're not going to be killing every worm in the, in the soil. No, it's, it's going to be all nature. about nature. It's, uh, it, it, yeah. it, well, it's wonderful hearing from you and from inside your amazing mind, Moncon, and uh, and I and I wanted to ask you about the evil eye that I'm getting from the hen when I go to collect uh, the egg every morning. But we don't have time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my question and I'm gonna ask it of you when I see you next June in the Boris Festival down the road in Carlo. Moncon, thanks so much for spending a bit of time with me. Thank you so much, Hugo. Lovely to talk to you. Good luck. You're listening to The Art Show on KCLR with Hugo Jealous. Brought to you with thanks to Kilkenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland. Now, a few years ago, Bruce Robinson came to Canti Carlo and joined actor Dominic West on stage for a conversation about Zeffirelli and Truffaut and Johnny Depp and, of course, his masterpiece With Nell and I. He is, without exception, my all-time favourite guest in the history of... Uh, being all, uh, a part of this festival. So, here he is. How Withnor started, it's really, this is absolutely true, by the way. Um, I, I was, I, so I was in Camden Town, so broke, you used to get uh, eight quid a week national assistance. Uh, and I was there, and it was the winter, and right outside the house, all of the furniture in the house, Vivian and I, used to carry stuff down to the, uh, to, to, you know, to the junk shops and stuff and, uh, and, and sell things. And there was nothing in the house. I had a mattress upstairs with a big leather overcoat that I used to sleep under. And I had one light bulb that used to go around the house with me. So <laughs> when I went to bed, it was in, in that room. And then I'd take it out in the morning, go down, put it in the kitchen. And... Uh, and sit there in front of uh, a gas oven uh, to keep warm. And that's, anyway, it was winter. And I had this little portable um, Olivetti typewriter. And I was there and it was miserable. And I had no money, no food. Uh, you know, it was literally in those days, it was 10 gold leaf or it was, you know, cotton chips type of stuff. So I'd have the gold leaf sit sucking that. And, and, I, and it was night, and the, this orange street lamp outside our front window 
tangerine-coloured light streaming in across the floorboards and a chair. And I sort of slipped off the chair, because why, why wouldn't you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at this orange light. And, 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 and then I started to pray. And then I said, Jesus Christ, please, can I have a job? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the head forehead greeted the floorboards, <laughs> imminent tears, and it was so ridiculous, the situation, like, that I had hysterical fucking laughter. And <laughs> I was just, truly, this is absolutely true, I was rolling on the floor of my predicament, <laughs> just laughing and laughing because it was so stupid. I was 23 years old and over, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> And I thought I was going to have to go back to Broadstairs, you know, with my, my parents or what. Uh, and uh, so anyway, it's, you know, I had this little Olivetti and I shoved a piece of paper in and, uh, the, and, and type with Nell and I. We were so bloody broke, you know, that we would go around all the litter bins, get, you used to get fourpence on a bottle of Guinness in those days. And so Viv, Viv and I would go around with shopping bags looking in the trash bins and stuff to find Guinness bottles and uh, take them down the off-license and get the cheapest piece of red slash that could be purchased, you know, like 11 and 6 or for a bottle of filth. <laughs> and in those days in England, you could only, there were only two wines. There was a thing called Piat de Beaujolais, which is repugnant wine. <laughs> and a worse one than that is called Hirondelle. <laughs> Which, and this was what we had to drink. Uh, and then we go back, and here was the great thing about my flatmate, Vivian. Viv was a public school boy, very well-educated person. I gather there's some sound quality issues with that excerpt, which is such a tragedy, but you'll be able to hear that full interview online on KCLR. So, um, in the meantime, we're going to play perhaps the most important track of that film with Nell and I. To Monk and Magon, and and to all the other guests, including Susie Lamb, of course, this evening, all the other guests that we've had um, over the month of, of December. Um, I wish you all really wonderful Christmas, and I will see you shortly afterwards in the new year. The Art Show on KCLR with Hugo Jellis, with thanks to Kilkenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland.